Hey, I'm Jason Wood, the VA Loan Guy and host of the Armed and Ready podcast. Please come and check out this exciting episode we have for you. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Armed and Ready podcast. I'm your host, Jason Wood, the VA Loan Guy. Today, we have Marine veteran Hiram Figueroa with us today, and I'm so excited to have you on the show, Hiram. Um, he's a friend of a past guest that we had on the show, Nick Popovich, um, who's super fun, great story. You guys served together in the Marine Corps, and, um, and I'll let Hiram share his story, but he was, he was a drill instructor for part of that, and for everybody who's listening or watching this and served in the military, I think there's one figure that you probably never forget, and that's who your drill instructor was, right? And uh, I don't know that anybody could even forget their drill instructor's name um, without being knocked in the head pretty pretty hard, but <laughs> definitely leaves an impression. So, so Hiram, thanks so much for coming on, man. I'm so excited to learn about your story. Well, thank you. You know, first of all, I want to thank you for allowing me to be part of this platform. It's it's very moving. It's humbling. It gives me an it gives us an opportunity to exchange thoughts and stories for uh, the audience and bring some value at the same time. And to your point, Popovich and myself, we did serve together back in the Marine Corps. We were both drill instructors back in the early 80s. So that type of culture was pretty much everything that you think can go wrong went wrong, but we didn't get caught doing it. (laughs) So things were really highly regulated in a sense that we would see something that a drill instructor would do. We would turn the platoon around and just march the other way. We won't, you know, it's a drive-by. It's like he's wearing them out. He's doing something unethical. We're going to turn him around, and we'll talk to him later. So glad to be on this podcast with you or awesome. on this show as well. Thanks, Hiram. Well, um, so you you joined the Marine Corps, um, and tell, tell us what was your motivation? Like what what inspired you as a youngster to say, hey, I'm going to I want to get in the military? Look. That's a great question. We all have a story. We have a how and then there's a why. The why is that I come from a very dysfunctional family. Uh, We were on welfare back in the day, back in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, Single parents, uh, we were just struggling to make ends meet. Uh, No good role model. You're just raising yourselves in the streets. And then uh, we started walking around a group of us. We saw the recruiter station and then, hey, a few of the proud. And a lot of us would just challenge ourselves say, well, if you're that tough, let's join the Marine Corps. So to make a long story short, I was like 16 and I, you know, I hit the recruiter and he says, you got to wait till you're 17. So I hit my mom up and she was crying. And I said, I don't want to, I don't want you to sign up, but I said, I need you to. So you're talking to pretty much a guy that was, had no sense of direction, no mentorship, lack of the education, dropped out of high, uh, high school at ninth grade. His GPA, it, well, pretty much score, uh, the grades back then was not considered GPA. You're, t- you're talking originally to a guy that is fifth grade reading level, fourth grade grammar with no sense of direction that wanted to be someone. So with that point, you know, I joined the Marine Corps, grow, grew up in the Marine Corps. I thought I was, you know, all that, but it was a lot of things I was missing. Yeah. So to your point that that's how my story, my story began. Yeah, absolutely. So got in the Marine Corps, obviously you did your basic training, went to your MOS school. Um, what did you do in the Marine Corps? You didn't go into being a drill instructor right away. What did you do initially? What was your first job? So my first job was a pencil pusher. I was an admin guy. So pretty oh, okay. much it was like I graduated from the boot camp. I went home. They say, hey, what's your MOS? Oh, you're a clerical guy. So 
we went back to school back where it was boot camp at Paris Island. I went to school for like two months. Next thing you know, uh, they had an opportunity for overseas. I picked uh, going to Japan, got stationed out there, and then I was out there for the next three years. But to your point, I didn't know it was a, I took it as, hey, I wanted to be an infantry guy until I got stationed in Japan. I was sent to the infantry. And my first sergeant was telling me, yes, we're going to send you to an infantry unit. So my first duty station was in Okinawa, Japan. And then they TAD me. They temporarily assigned me to a duty station up in northern uh, Okinawa. And I was assigned as an admin guy with 3rd Recon Battalion. So when I got to 3rd Recon Battalion and the first sergeant looked at me, he says, okay, PFC Figueroa, here's the deal. So you're an admin guy. You're going to carry your backpack your alice pack and the typewriter but you're going to be doing everything that we do so i pretty much learned all the processes and plans and the culture from being around the recon community so i didn't get selected i didn't go through the selection but i was in the support battalion to be able to do that so back then in the fmf we did it back in the late 70s and early 80s we did everything together so that's how my Marine Corps career gets Just started. OJT, right? Learned it on the job. All that is do more with less. Right. Do more with less. So for me, it was an eye-opening experience. And you start seeing today that it, uh, during the post and pre-9-11 of how uh, SEALs, MOSOC, uh, Green Berets, Rangers, how it's been glorified. But there's a long history of the operations community that that – has a lineage that it's pretty much a culture that you be that you become, and if you're around that culture, that type of environment and that language stays with you. So that's why, for me, I support the special operations community because I it's more relatable. I can understand that. Yeah. So a lot of people don't understand what it is when you're in that type of environment. You have to be able to experience to know what you're talking about. Yeah. No, that makes that makes a ton of sense, and it it has been glorified with TVs and, and movies and books and things like that. But um, I mean, just the few the few friends that I have that were special operators, like you can just tell, like there's there's a unity, there's a brotherhood there that is really unique. I mean, I think we all have some sense of that as just being veterans, right? But that that group is such a smaller niche, and they're tight, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's really interesting to see. But definitely, like you were saying. A particular culture there right and what you're starting to see that it's pretty much commercialized and a lot of operators don't wear operator shirts they don't wear operator attire they right. don't advertise that they don't need to advertise an operator can tell when another operator is in the presence they say you do great ops or something to that effect there there there's a culture there's a call call a call name there's something to that effect that's pretty relatable or they can identify hey were you in this type of op or whatever the case may be and they can say well you were stationed here it's stationed there so that type of unity is vetted through the community by getting to know each other or being in the right place at the right time yeah yeah i know you so you went from from brooklyn now you're in japan like what kind of a I mean, you're young. I mean, you're, what, 18 years old at that point? You know, what, what kind of an experience was that? So pretty much when the Marine Corps birthday came out, I was like the, the you know, the youngest recruit, uh, youngest Marine to be able to get that piece of cake. You have the oldest Marine, then I was the youngest Marine. So at that time in the late 70s, you're starting to get the Vietnam veterans coming back from Vietnam. They stopped to Taiwan. They stopped to Okinawa, and then they go to Hawaii. Then they go back to 
stateside to be able to be discharged. So I'm coming at the tail end. I'm joining the Marine Corps. I'm coming at the tail end where a lot of Vietnam veterans are, are just going through that transition. Yeah. So how was it back in, Oka- in Okinawa? It was pretty much somewhere to the sense of boys, a company C and, and full metal jacket. Not to that extent where it's glorified, but you're starting to see the character of how the military was. There was no filter. It was a matter of fact. They did a lot of crazy stuff, but we've seen, I've seen a lot of crazy things from Vietnam veterans just coming out of the jungle that pretty much instills with me that it's a memory that people don't understand. You have to be able to experience it. For the last three years that I stayed in Japan, I was pretty much brought myself up, learned the language, be around salty veterans. They were mentoring me, uh, understanding the sense of brotherhood, the type of language, what is it, the type of unity. And then when you get to the state side, that that's a big disconnect because you're not part of that culture anymore because you're coming back to civilization, if that makes sense to you. Yeah. Yeah, that does make sense. Um, so you came back. I mean, you got you got some good experience from these guys. And it's interesting being in, like, in that transition from like right at the end of like a war era and then obviously went into another war era not too long after that, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I'm sure you have – I mean you went through a couple of different wars in, in your, your service, right? So, um, so what was it like you know, just kind of garnering like their mentorship and their leadership from these you know, Vietnam era guys? And what, was there any change or difference when now we're in like this, this next kind of like the, the Cold War era type thing? What, what was that like while you – being active duty. So when you're being mentored by the culture of the Vietnam era, it's pretty much, you have to realize that that culture was pretty much frowned upon, spit upon, disowned, but they kept it together. They kept their, you know, they don't talk about what happened in the war. They don't, they don't say anything. If you notice in the last 40, 50 years, rarely you hear a high rate of suicide with the Vietnam veterans. They're proud. Not, they f- finally get their just due. But to your point, they've been able to mentor me with real-life scenarios that stay with me because of what they've experienced. Now, I take that to heart. Now, when we're going into a different era, Cold War era, or more or less a peacetime era, that instead of uh, we're going through the Cold War and then we're going to go to the Persian Gulf War or we have Grenada or Panama or something like that. These are different campaigns. It's nothing compared to what the Vietnam era is. Yeah. And so when they bring that type of intensity of leadership, and I'm a young, impressionable guy, that stays with you. So what does that do? It creates conflict. It, it, it creates a pushback because you've been mentored by one of the best, and you have a more or less an infantry mentality of dealing with people when it comes to stressful situations. And when you're going through a Cold War era or peacetime, there are politics involved. So if you're not politically correct, you find yourself behind the eight ball and find yourself biting the hand that feeds you, if that makes sense to you. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Never thought about that. Um, so how long um, were you in Okinawa? And then did you come back stateside after that? So I was stationed in Okinawa for three years. I came back and then I was an admin guy for, uh, for pretty much the Marine Security Guard Battalion. And, uh, you know, I was uh, helping and supporting Marine Security Guard Battalion. They go through embassy school, so helping these guys out and learning the culture. And at that time, the guys from the Iran hostages were out there. They were coming back home. And that's when 
couple of the uh, guys that served embassy duty, they were, you know, coming back from the hostage situation. They were pretty much staged at the, at the school, keeping away from the media. So I was able to interact with two of the Marines that were there. Wow. So they pretty much just said it pretty much sucked for all that time. There's a lot of backstory that happens that the media doesn't talk about. And it's more or less they have their severe post-traumatic stress of dealing with the, with the cultural uh, relevance of, hey, why Americans are being hated or why you're being a political pawn and how they come back to the States and see a different perspective and how they view you from a thousand, uh, thousand yard stare and say you have it more or you have something that's pretty much relevant. You should appreciate it because I was in captivity for 400 something days. Man. So Unreal. these are little moments of experience that you can't buy. People look at the movies, but when you experience, when you're interacting with that type of audience, it leaves it leaves an impression of how they view things. Just like back to your point, I view things from a different perspective. I can understand from a foreigner's perspective that when you come to the United States, they always talk about the United States of the land of the milk and honey because this is opportunity. So. A lot of foreigners come to the United States and seek the opportunity, but us as Americans who have been brought up here, we become pretty much soft because we have self-entitlement. Yeah. So therefore, when you're starting to see someone that's excelling because they see the opportunity and we're not taking the same advantage, we have resentment. That's a culture clash. What does that mean? I, I, let me unpack that for you. It, it goes back to the saying of how you're being mentored. You view things from a different perspective. If somebody's loss is somebody's opportunity, where people have low-level mentality that seek opportunity, where high-level mentality seeks accountability. So that's where I come from in that era. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I see it um, a lot just in the, in the civilian world now, you know, and, and employing people and, and, and dealing with the different generations and stuff. There's there is a, a large sense of that entitlement, you know, being raised in the land of milk and honey. Um, and um, it's interesting when you have kind of that different perspective of kind of that, that fight and go get it mentality and, and you, and you run into that. I should have more than I'm given mentality. You know, there, there is that internal culture clash for sure. Well, we're, we're pretty much privileged. If you look at it, we're both veterans. We've come from two different walks of life, but we're actually sitting here before we got on the show and we talked about how your journey became to where you're at and how we've been able to collaborate and where I'm coming from. Yeah. And we pretty much have the opportunity of choice. Sure. So choice is true. We choose to be successful or not. It's not a right or wrong answer. It's pretty much what it is. Yeah. And that's how we're living right now. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. Um, but tell me a little bit about um, being a drill instructor. Um, I mean, you know, obviously in movies and stuff, it's pretty glorified. Um, but I don't know. I mean, the level of yelling is, is, is pretty spot on, I would, if I can recall. But, um, but tell us about that. I mean, I, I have a couple friends who actually were, um, went through drill instructor school and were instructors as well, too. And um, it actually, I mean, as much as we kind of make light of it, it's a critical role in the military, right? I mean, you're, you're shaping the entire military in this eight-week period. So that's a great question. And I could tell you that's one of the highlights of my career. So I got selected to go to DI school, and I went to DI school in MCRD San Diego back in the 80s. I can remember it was class 5-83. So prior to that, 
there, there was like five of us that were got there like 30 days earlier. We were enjoying California and everything, but we were watching how the instructors were just handling the, the students. And pretty much, you could say it was the Marine Corps version of Bud School, right? Bud's, Bud's over there in Coronado. Yeah. So I can unpack this as you go to DI school, you go through orientation, they introduce you to the uh, OIC, the officer in charge, the staff and COIC, then your instructors. So there's a curriculum. There's pretty much, hey, we got the first phase, second phase, third phase, whatever we got, just like boot camp. And there's curriculums and there's certain things you have to be able to maintain a score to able to graduate from DI school. So therefore, you have to pass a PFT. You have to have, back then it was, you had to have a first class PFT. If you didn't have a first class PFT, you were just filtered out. Academics was another thing, knowing the academics of uh, how we teach recruits. So if you notice in the movies or in the documentaries, drill instructors are teaching the recruits, and this is what we have to do it off the bat, verbatim. Yep. From that point on, it also is knowing how to administrate first aid, and when we're taking them on a run, we can't show, back when I came in, that you're tired, you're exhausted, you got to be able to show that hey, these recruits are constantly looking at you. They're, they're sizing you up, and they're going to duplicate themselves based on your presence. So you're, you have to be on point 24-7. Yeah. The biggest thing that I can honestly tell you that it, was, it came close to twice, I think three times I didn't make it to DI school, graduate from DI school. Seriously. Wow. And it was because the academic standpoint, Right. Because you had to know how to march a platoon, call the platoon and know the academics and everything. So you're graded on that. So I failed it like twice. And the third time, if I didn't pass it, I was done. So it was like you're talking about the three strike effect. You're talking about stressing out. Pressure's on. The pressure's on. And I left. uh, uh, My my wife was in Quantico, Virginia. And I wasn't going to go back to my unit not passing the high school. I, I can honestly tell you, the stressful situation was like on there. Uh, my chief instructor, he would tell me, hey, you're on the bubble. You're about to pop here pretty soon if you don't pass. So I had to like get on it, be on there, learn, losing my voice to be able to march a platoon. So the following day, I was like sucking honey and lemon to do take my squad and do all the drills that a drill instructor would do and pass that. And at the same time, we've gone on pretty much conditioning hikes with humps and more or less. Yep. I mean, it goes back to what we're talking about. I'm an admin guy. What the chief instructor does, you're the admin guy, right? Yes. Take this radio and you're going to be the front of the line. So I got to be up there with the lead instructor. Yeah. And I can't fall back. I've never done a hump in what we're talking about in... Camp Pendleton, Mount Mother's, the elevation is high, it's steep. It's about 10 degrees up. So think about that you're a admin guy, you know, a clerical guy, and you're carrying an Alice pack, which is 60 pounds, and then add on to a radio, which is an old radio, that's another 45 pounds. That's not including your helmet and your gear, and you're going up a grade, you're facing your face, you're looking at it, and you're billy goading up the hill. And they're waiting for you to quit. Yeah. They're they waiting for you to quit. So there was a lot of tears during that time. 
But I can honestly tell you the at the end when we graduated, there was we started with eighty five and there was twenty four of us that graduated. Wow. So DI school does have a high attrition rate. And the other thing is if you got caught in class, they keep you on the position, uh put push up position for a while to teach you incentive and then you will never fall asleep. So to the drill instructors that are out there now, I know the curriculum's changed, but the platform, the basics, the foundation is there. I hope I answered that question for you. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's 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 a cool perspective to hear because I don't think a lot of people think about what the DI is going through, right? Because you know, on some of these runs, yeah, they're exhausted, yeah. right? They don't they don't want to go run, <laughs> you know. They're tight, and and you run out of gas sometimes too, but you can't show it. Like you have to show that. It's not phasing you. So here's a good thing, right? When we're running a PFT, they go like this. We, as, as we take our platoon, the senior drill instructor would talk about, hey, Sergeant Figueroa, you're going to take the lead. Sergeant So-so, you'll be in the middle. I'll be in the back with the other drill instructor. So guess what? What? You're going to start the run with them. So I got track stars hauling, flying, and they're just waiting for me to break. And I'm at that time, I'm like 21. These kids are like 17 and 18. They're flying. Yeah. They're flying. I mean, they're just getting a high, looking, running next to the drill instructor. So you're talking about pressure on. That's like pressure. And you can't quit. The only thing you could do is do some crafty stuff. So drill instructor so-and-so is going to get you on this side, which allows you to fall back and Recover. Recover, yeah. So we've had some serious issues about that as far as our conditioning is concerned because when we're out there performing the duties and teaching you, hey, push-ups and everything else, and the senior drill instructors out there, okay, we're doing the push-ups with you, and we can't show that kind of weakness. So the pressure's on. So for us, it's game on 24-7, and then it comes to the point where Private start doing, you know, crazy stuff. And this is our stress factor where we relieve stress, push-ups, mountain climbers, get one sheet, get a fitted sheet, enter your foot locker. No, not good enough. Go back outside, bury your foot locker or bury your rifle. Let's continue. Let's have a funeral. We start becoming creative. Those are pretty much <laughs> hazing processes <laughs> yeah. that would be totally unlawful today. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. No, it's it's interesting because... Um, you, you just, you, you never think like, I don't know, as being the recruiter, the, the new person, right. And you got this, this drill instructor, what you're not thinking about is like the additional exhaustion, right? Like if you're, if you're running the, the guys or anything like that, like you're also like calling cadence, you're yelling at them, you're talking to them the whole time. It's one thing to just be in the zone and run. Right. Right. Like everyone can, they get like that, that runner's high, you call it, right? Like mm-hmm. you can get in the zone and you can run. And once you hit a certain mark, you can go for a while. But when you have to be mentally engaged and watching everybody and correcting and yelling and calling cadence, I mean, it's, it's a lot more energy exerted. So, um, and you know, I'm just thinking back to when I was in basic training, I never thought about that, you know, what the instructor was going through. I'm just thinking like, okay, I just got to keep going, you know, and they're, they're doing it too, but they're also screaming at us, <laughs> you know? Well, drill instructors have a life too. We have our own drama. We have our own issues. Yeah. I mean, we have domestic issues. I've had, you know, drill instructors back in the day, hey, uh, my wife and me are getting divorced. You know what they would do? I'll take the duty off of you. I'll sleep at the at the hooch, you know, make sure that the driver, that the privates get up. 
So there's certain things we have to support, or you have drill instructors that are having some serious issues, hey, which is financial, or they like to drink a lot, and we make it a point not to let that happen and show in the platoon. Sometimes we can do that, sometimes we can't. Sometimes when we're when we finish the cycle with a platoon, we get two weeks off, so we act stupid. We like, hey, this is our vacation, and some of us don't know how to control ourselves. So we find ourselves relieved of costs. Hey, you're unethical, you're doing this, you're doing that, get kicked off the drill field. So therefore, these are little things that happen to us. And if you're not fully engaged as you stay, mm-hmm. privates can see that. And what they do is they can they read you, they see it. And if you're not on point on that level, then they have a way of manipulating or put you in a situation where you're not successful. Yeah, yeah absolutely. How long were you, uh, were you a DI for? Three and a half years. Okay. Three and a half years. And, uh, you know, I missed it. But, uh, you know, I was more or less, hey, you got to go back to the regular Marine Corps and everything else. So that's what I went to. And I got stationed out from MCRD about two and a half hours up the road called 29 Palms in the desert. Yeah. Where it's uh, 129. Paradise, right? Yeah, 129 <laughs> in the shade. So pretty much that's where I was at for the last couple of years. Oh, man. And what were you back to doing your previous job then when you went up to 29 Palms? Yeah, I was, uh, I became the admin chief. Then they assigned me as a platoon sergeant. So I was at, at that time with 5th Battalion and 11 Marines. So it's an infantry artillery unit that was pretty much on the desert. So we would go out there and do all these field ops out there in the, in the heat. Mm-hmm. It'd be 126 degrees, but that's pretty much where my time was done and during the time all the way to the Persian Gulf and then afterwards. And then I got out. That's pretty much what it is. Gotcha. Did you ever see like, um, you know, like when, when you were a DI and stuff, um, any like ebbs and flows of like recruiting, right? Cause I know, you know, military goes through highs and lows as far as pulling recruits in and stuff like that. And maybe you didn't see it in, in a three year span, but did you ever see or feel like, oh man, we got like a big wave coming in or, man, they're, oh, yeah. they're hurting, they're having a hard time. Or did you experience that kind of thing? Here's what's going on. We, we, we would collaborate with the receiving department, the receiving recruit uh, DIs, because you have these drill instructors that you ever see that in the, in the movies that the drill instructors start yelling at them or get off the bus. Well, there's drill instructors that specifically work for receiving and they would collaborate. Hey, we get a group from Chicago that I could give you a story. I had a group of privates straight from Chicago. There was like four of us drill instructors. They say, hey, they're coming in. Your herd's coming in at this time, this night. So we'd be in civilian clothes, and the drill instructors would say, hey, go check this guy out. And they would make fun of him and say, nice haircut, but that's not going to last. And we would watch. And pretty much we had mostly black and Latinos pretty much coming from that uh, environment in the inner city. And I was saying, we're going to have fun with these guys. But at the same time, we get the intel that, you know, there was some challenges as far as recruiting was concerned because also recruiting is a business as far as marketing and sales. Totally. So when they don't make the quota now, this is back, you know, 35, 40 years ago. I'm not saying about now. I, it's it's not fair for me to say that. But back when I was in there, it was, a, it was like, if you're breathing, you can join. Right. So... We're not looking at the GPA. We're not looking at stellar pedigree. We're looking at somebody with a warm body that wants to join the Marine Corps. Now, it's up to us to filter them out or mold them and decide if they can hack it. So 
our our main objective is to size up the group and look at what's going on and pretty much pinpoint he's a troublemaker, he's a whiner, he's a rat, he's a kiss ass. This is what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to separate them or we'll put these guys and we become creative. Let's put them these type of characters together so that we can see conflict and more or less either they can bond together or they hate each other and they yeah. quit. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I'm sure you guys have so many good stories like that. Um, you know, I, I just recall back like just the different personalities and stuff in our, in our flight and things. And just some of the things you're, you're talking about, you know, going to remake your, your bunk again and do it over. And it's, the sheet's not tight enough. And <laughs> yeah, we, we, we would come up with some hazy. I mean, we, we had our time management card. So we had scribes say, okay, you got class at this time from this time. Oh, we have a half an hour. Guess what? But we're going to play some games before we go to chow. So we would go out there and make them look like sugar cookies and come back again and they'd be tired or we would haze them in the point where the chow hall was open and say, hey, go over there and smell the food and get back out. So those I remember, are I remember one of those experiences. <laughs> so those are things that pretty much a lot of movie characters or the movie doesn't really tell you. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that privates or veterans that have been in the military, in the Marine Corps, especially drill instructors can vouch for that because they've had scenarios where the drill instructors are just flat out crazy. They make us sit. Okay, come away. We have time. So I have 15 minutes. So what I'll do is this. I'll tell you what. I'll put them in, make them sniff, take a cup of water, sit down, get back out. Let's go. Move. So they won't know. We have to keep them guessing. Yeah. So our main goal is to keep them guessing at all times because if it becomes too routine, then what happens is they become creative as, as well, and they find ways to monopolize or 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 put fight put us against each other, which that's not going to happen. Which I've seen that happen. So, those are the backstories of what's going on in the drill field. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot of neat stories. Um, so, you got out in what ninety nine? No, ninety two. Ninety two. Okay, so you got out ninety two, and what did you do after that? Did you have a plan or no, no. Here's the discharge. I know we're on, we're on this, but, you know, I, I'm not going to filter this out. Don't let the door hit you on your ass on the way out, pretty much. There's no thing as TAPS at that time, the transitional program. Yep. Uh, I have to tell you that that TAPS program really sucked because you're dealing with government employees that have no concept of helping you to transition. Keep in mind, this is in the early 90s. We're going about 30 years now. Yeah. There's no social media. There's no flip phones. There's nothing like that. It's more or less like swim and fi- fix it. I can honestly tell you that when I got out, I was laying in my bed, looking up in the sky, what am I going to do? I had no resume, no marketing skills. A lot of guys were going to the police department, the fire department. I applied. I was just waiting. And the fire department had a, back in the 90s, was like a long waiting list. So during that time, I was working at a, um, what you know, temp jobs, and mm-hmm. I was working at Xerox, and I was helping this guy, a UPS employee, a driver, load up and say, hey, so thank you for helping me out. You want to work for UPS? I said, I'll work for UPS. So 12 bucks an hour back in the 90s was a lot of money. Yeah. 12 bucks an hour. Yeah, people complain about 15 bucks an hour. So get back in the 90s, it's 12 bucks an hour, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, he says, hey, 12 bucks an hour, then you get a bonus. It's what you mean. Oh, if you beat your route, you get an extra 500 bucks. So back then, UPS drivers were going like, hey, you can make $48,000 as a UPS driver. 
So $48,000 back about 30 years ago is what? Equivalent to a six-figure income. Probably 100 grand today, yeah. Right. So I couldn't say no. So I brought my uh, discharge and uh, my papers and went through the interview. Back then, it was like you walked in just like you walk in a studio. You have a, you have a, a group of uh, HR people. Why you want to work for UPS? So they're asking you all these face value questions. And then we went to an orientation in downtown Los Angeles, and there was like 50 of us. And then we were all straight off the street, so we had no concepts. So I'm going like, UPS ain't all about that because I was in the Marine Corps. Sadly to say that I almost didn't make probation because I underestimated the culture of how hard it is to work at UPS. No kidding. Right. So think about this. Everybody, if you're noticing in UPS, the drivers, they carry computers, right? The little diet boards, the little whatever they call their diet boards. It's pretty much electronic. Now they have maps and everything. Right. Back when I did it, it was more or less like 50 liners. You write on paper and here's the here's a map. Let me draw a map of Los Angeles. This is the street. This is the street. Here's a Thomas guy. See you later. Have a great day. Don't bring any packages back. So that's how it was. And you got to figure out the fastest way to do the route and... And be safe. And and pretty much, they didn't have shorts. And Santa Ana's were tough. So I became a driver. You know, I was a Christmas hire. I got hired back. Then I went through probation again. I became a driver for like uh, 10 years. Then I went through management. Then I, I saw the different aspects of it. I was a, you know, lead driver, shop steward. Then I became a management, an on-road supervisor, industrial engineer, and doing uh, uh, measurements of how to save time, and then pretty much in the operations. But to your point, UPS taught me a valuable lesson of not to underestimate the, the, uh, the intensity of the UPS culture, of what it is. Yeah. And, and, I, and I love my UPS employees because they're one of the hard, hardest working individuals there is. Yeah, that's a great company to work for. I remember um, in college, that was like, if you could get a job working at UPS in college, you were a rich college kid. Correct. They paid well. They pay well. They take care of you very well. But the biggest thing that I can honestly tell you is that after you sell yourself for that dollar and you put all your eggs in one basket, over the course of time, you're not being marketable because you're consumed with the UPS life. Yeah. You're out there 12, 14 hours a day. You're getting paid. Now, what happens if you get hurt and you can't work anymore? Well, you don't have that UPS money. You don't have that UPS benefit. So a lot of UPS employees struggle to maintain the lifestyle because they see a great company, see everything, but there's a sacrifice behind that. You're giving your livelihood to a company that pretty much owns you and is not teaching you how to save your finances or teaching you how to be successful. They're just paying you to work. Right. And then once you learn, if you have a degree, then you can move up the food chain. But other than that, it's a worker bee environment. Totally. Yeah. So take us, So what are you up to? What are you doing now? So after UPS, so I retired from UPS. And I can tell you that uh, UPS has one of the highest divorce rates with iron workers and law enforcement and everybody else. I didn't know that. So I'll be very honest with you because... Uh, a lot of us UPS employees spend about 18 hours of our lives away from our family. That's from the minute you get up to the minute you hit the bed. You're talking about 
getting your breakfast, your timeline, as far as getting to travel, spending time at work, and then you're spending most of your time with UPS employees. So families suffer, relationships suffer, finance suffer, and your health suffers because you're focusing on that. So I decided to retire at 20, after 25 years because I started to see a high divorce rate. And as a manager, I was putting 19 hours for a salary that I wasn't getting really compensated for. And this is before it went public. And when it did go public, it made a massive explosion where stake, shareholders were getting involved. And we weren't really focusing on the employee environment. We were focusing on the corporate dollar of the shares of how much the value of the stock would go up there. Yeah. So I decided to get out. I applied for government jobs. I had one for ICE. My first government job relocated my family. Didn't know there was a background investigation. Didn't know that, hey, you can, uh, relocation was not involved. Moved my family, spent 12000 bucks. Then I had a background investigator say, hey, you're not financially suitable. You're not qualified after three months. Oh. I had to move my family back. Oh, no. So meanwhile, I'm looking for a job. So finally, I got a job. I get a call from the VA. So I said, screw it. I'm going to go there. So I went there. Now, mind you, I just came from the private for-profit environment. I have no idea how the federal government works. I have no idea. Talk about culture, right? You talk about <laughs> culture shock. This is another culture shock. I said, oh, I'm going to be around veterans. So as we're speaking, you know, before the show, we're talking veteran talk. We're talking more or less. So I'm thinking that's the type of analogy. Well, guess what? There's another culture shock. It's pretty much a click environment, which is, you know, a cancel culture. Right. Yep. Pretty much a cancel culture. Yeah. And that's pretty much where I can identify with today's society is a cancel culture. They can't control you, but they can control everybody else and generate misinformation to be for you to be unsuccessful. So I came into an environment where it was more or less I became the fleet operations manager and it was in Long Beach. I can say that now because I'm not working for the VA anymore. But um in the VAPD, they had one marked unit, and the rest of them were government vehicles that were not taken care of. Hey, the, so you're the fleet manager. We need to do this. So I come to find out that I'm doing everything from the government's, uh, from UPS standpoint. I'm bringing my transitional skills, right. transitional skills, and I'm saying, so why are you doing this and why are you doing that? So I'm seeing a lot of corruption. I'm seeing, hey. I'm taking the government vehicle home and I'm using the credit card to go shopping. I'm seeing this. I'm saying I'm taking the car to go to Vegas and back. Or I'm using the VA government card and I'm purchasing tickets to go to Hawaii. Jeez. And they're asking me to, to reconcile it. So I'm not doing that crap. You know, and then when you decide to be a whistleblower, guess what happens? You become the bad guy. Of course. Yep. So I spend six years of that. And at the same time, I became an advocate for veterans' rights and, you know, peer support. And during that transition between UPS and the VA, I created a profile on LinkedIn that when it first came out like 18 years ago, and I started utilizing that. So I started, once I got certified at helping veterans to be able to get their rights and get them service-connected and help them be a voice, I was more into that environment while I was still responsible for that duties, but after a while I needed to get out because it wasn't helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. 
And um, did you stay in kind of that that serving the the veterans role at all? Did you continue doing that in some fashion? Yeah, let's put it this way: when you're serving for the veterans role, that's an oath that doesn't expire. Right. So, to your point, when veterans mentored me, we go back to the Vietnam uh, era, right? We're going back to the Vietnam. These are guys that are personally putting sweat equity and investment in you to be successful. How do and I go? How do I pay you back? I said you pay it forward. So I've learned that ever since. And that's pretty much what I've been able to do to be successful, and I do it till this day. What, what happened after the VA? So, look, um, here's what's going on, right? I, during the course of the VA, I put all my sweat equity in there, and I found myself not marketing myself, and I decided I needed to get out of the VA. So here I am applying for other jobs, and they're telling me, oh, you have all this experience but you don't have a degree. And I said, well, how is it that you can tell me that I'm a great fit, but I need the credentials? What is the credentials going to do for you if I have this experience? Help me help you understand. Well, we need that. Why? Nine times out of 10 of the recruiters couldn't give me an answer. Couldn't give me an answer. And this is why I was applying on LinkedIn because I found myself also a victim of more or less social media age discrimination. Oh. Because if you put down so much information, more than 10 years, there's more or less that I've talked to other talent acquisition people since, hey, you're not going to be able to be hired because they don't feel the value of somebody with that much experience. They're looking for new blood to get more of a return on investment. Yeah. So during that course of time of the pandemic, I'm doing side gigs, I'm doing consultations, and I decided to uh, go back to the government and apply for Army Corps engineers. So I got picked up by the, now he's a lieutenant colonel. He picked me, and I worked for the district office down in uh, Los Angeles as Army Corps engineers. So we, more or less, I've learned a lot about being around the Army Corps engineers because there's a backstory to them as well. They deal with a lot of reservations, water rights, and understand this, when the floods get in, they're involved, yeah. And especially when the fires come in, and especially they were told me is with working with FEMA and Cal Fire is that they provide a lot of equipment and support as well. Mm. And I've been able to do uh, projects and construction, so that gig helped me get over the hump and get away from the VA. And during the course of time, I helped a couple of startup companies on LinkedIn as well to be able to help another veteran start a, you know, government crisis uh, protection organization as far as active shooters. As you well know, active shooters is going rampant as, as much as we're having Starbucks all, all over the corner. Right? right. Yeah. So everything is before Columbine. And during that time, active shooters was like far few between. Now it's like every other week. Something to that reason, something to that effect. We need to do this and need to do that. So I collaborated with a friend of mine, Jacob Edwards, who's a Afghanistan combat veteran, and he's been able to build a business model, and I'm an ambassador to help him out. And at the same time, I'm helping my wife, as, as we talked about, as in the insurance agency, People Helping People, which was founded by two veterans. Nice. So that's what I'm doing right now, and I'm still providing a service as a public servant for the veterans. So you can't go and 
just because you leave the VA for me, you can't just stop doing what you're doing because that's what made me today of where we're at. This is why we're having this conversation today. Right. Yeah. Right. So how do you forget that? You know, there's no man left behind because the VA is a resource center, but you got to be able to speak the language to able to educate and mentor veterans to understand how can they utilize that platform even though you hate the VA, but that resource is there. And we and say, you're leaving money on the table. Right. And there's resources there, and we're entitled to that. So getting close to Memorial Day, and you're starting to notice that the pandemic, and we're going to a tier level that's pretty much everybody's being out there prominent. They're acting like it never happened, but it is. And, and if you're noticing the culture of society, they're more ruthless in a sense because they've been cooped up. So there's some passive-aggressive issues but to your point, circling back as I unpack this, is more or less still helping the veterans, even though I'm in a different role in the role within the federal government. Yeah. Now, I like how, how you mentioned earlier, you know, when you were um, talking about, you know, how do you repay like your mentors, right? And they talk about paying it forward. And I think that's like the, the ultimate um, the ultimate cry uh, for for a veteran to still be able to contribute, right? Because I think there's always, I think for most of us, there's always that sense of still wanting to be involved, right? Correct. And and that's the way that you do it, right? Is paying it forward through, and there's a multitude of ways to do it, um, but in some fashion, some way, just continuing to pay it forward. So look, Jason, let's put it this way, right? We're in a veteran community. We're outside of the military community. Sure. So now all of us have been able to sprout out our wings and develop our own and reinvent ourselves to a point that we're successful. But we all look for that yearning of communication from other veterans because that's how we've been brought up. So to able to create a culture of veteran community, you have to develop some sense of leadership. And that's personal development and leadership when you leave the military. All of us have been trained, and as a former drill instructor, we train you to have leadership traits and principles. That's instilled in you. Now, when you leave the military, those are triggers that come in in a survival situation where you are becoming an entrepreneur or you're pursuing a craft that you really love or you're having challenges that you don't understand. So therefore, for us and for you, using this platform is about communicating establishing a new format of how to reach out to veterans in the community and explain to them the concepts of personal development and personal leadership, regardless of when you've left the military. You hear a lot, oh, I used to be in the Marine Corps, I used to be in this. So what? You're still a veteran, right? Right. right? Always, yeah. So I'm sure when veterans come in, you're wearing your hat. I'm sure when you walk around, you're wearing, hey, I was at, uh, you know, the USS Nimitz or um, I was with 3-4, something to that fact, Army veteran. People see that. People want to gravitate that. So you're constantly on point. You have to be able to develop yourself whether you like it or not. Right. Correct? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, just just talking about that development and leadership and, you know, instilling those, like, foundational principles, you know, as, as you go just through basic military training. Um, and then when you do transition into the civilian world, really it's now it's more of like a refinement process, right? Like you got, you got the building blocks instilled in you in that basic training and, and throughout your, your experience in the military, right. And it's built upon, but, um, really, you know, developing yourself 
and and pursuing that constant improvement, right, is is something that um, all of us can do. And I think this is you know this this podcast is a good platform for for sharing that that experience with people and and how other people have been able to hone that and develop it, right? And it's it's really great to hear you know your story and other people's stories because everyone has their different posture on how they've accomplished that and what they've done and how they've, you know, continued to polish, right. And, and get, and get better. Well, look, you have a lot of skin in the game, right? You took yourself, you, you took a leap, leap of faith and now you created this platform right. just like myself. I've taken the skin of the game and I'm going like, let, let me level up on this. Let me be the best version of myself. Let me do something that is constantly just like Kobe Bryant. You have to be having that work ethic that is like relentless. Just like I had this conversation with Tim Grover, who wrote the book of Relentless yeah. and Winning. Is he just saying, winning knows your weak spots. Winning is everything. Winning is a high that you can't get away from, that even in your black market in your head. Those are the things that you have to look at when you're doing that. So when veterans like yourself and myself utilizing this platform, we constantly want to win. We don't have to verbalize it. We're demonstrating it by action. How does that happen? U- utilizing this platform and educating the veteran community, active or prior. Correct? Correct. Yep. No, you hit it spot on. Um, well, Hiram, I want to just say thanks, man, for for coming out and, and sharing your story with us, man. Um, this has been really, really cool and um, great to learn about you and, you know, all the experiences you've had. And I, I hope that, you know, our audience has been able to, to get some takeaways from this. I mean, I certainly have. And I, I think that, you know, in every episode we do, there's, there's a little nugget, right? And if there's anything we can leave with our audience with each episode is at least a little nugget, right? There's something that can be garnered from it. Um, so I appreciate you and thank you so much. Honored to have you on the show today. Well, thank you very much. And the last part, last comment is for you veterans out there, you need to be able to utilize social media to your advantage because I was founded through LinkedIn and you have to have that profile and utilize that to your advantage because we're in a social media driven community. And last but not least, I'm proudly to represent people helping people, the insurance finance industry, multi-diverse a lot of prior service veterans. If you're interested, look me up on LinkedIn and you can reach out to Jason, the podcast, and we'll be more than happy to communicate afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. Just reach out. You'll see the uh, this episode on YouTube, all the different um, podcast platforms, my website, valongai.us, and uh, definitely get you connected. You know, if you're having a, if you can't find us on, on social media or something like that. Um, but we look forward to helping anybody that we can. All right. Anyway, pleasure meeting you, man. Thanks, Hiram. All right. Thank you so much for checking out today's episode. If you have any questions about the guests on the show, please reach out to me at valoneguy.us.